We're turning to the book of Amos and the chapter 3, and I know that we didn't read from Amos in the Bible reading. We were rather in Matthew and the chapter 11, but we're in Amos tonight, Hosea, Joel, and then the book of Amos, and the chapter 3, and we're taking a line out of, well, it's the line that is verse 3. Amos 3 and 3, and no doubt you'll be well aware of this verse, you'll have heard it many times, can two walk together, except they be agreed? Can two walk together, except they be agreed? And with the Word of God before us, we will bow together, please, in a further word of prayer. Heavenly Father, again we commit ourselves and the remainder of this meeting into thy hand, the ladies' meeting that follows into thy hand as well. We pray, Lord, that thou will come, tabernacle with us, speak through the word unto our hearts. Right now we ask. We thank thee for the book of God. It is the balm of encouragement that we always need. It is, it acts as that rod of correction, and as thy people we need that many times as well. It comes and it is encouraging in all of its aspects. And Lord, we thank thee for that encouragement, and we know that thy word, it is forever settled in heaven, no matter what society says, no matter what changes there are in so-called churches, no matter which ones alter their stance on the moral, ethical issues of the day. And we have heard some lamentable statements last week in the House of Lords by one of the bishops there. But no matter what anti-biblical statements certain apostate churchmen come out with, We know that thy word is true from the beginning, that thy word has predated every single one of them, that thy word has stood the test of time, that thy word will never change. For our Lord Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And so we thank thee for what men and women, even one of our former prime ministers has called, we thank thee for the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture. And though that we had a prime minister in our country, and though that we had politicians in power that would believe that today, and would work off that basis in all of their speeches and interactions and law drafting and making and voting, then we know our country would be in a far healthier state than what it is in today. But given the governance we have, given the way in which the country is morally falling apart, uh, given the way there's a big capsize coming, uh, Lord, we ask of Thee, that in mercy the devil intervene and pull us back from this folly and from this fatal outcome. And may indeed our land be saved as it was in days gone by, whenever there was such division and such agitation back in the early 1920s. And we thank the Lord that, well, those that look through history 
will not minimize the impact that the message preached, the traction gained, the Holy Spirit power revealed under the ministry of W.P. Nicholson saved this country from absolute chaos and collapse. And Lord, Thou canst do it again, and we pray Thou wilt be willing to do it, ready to do it. This would be the time to fever Zion, that I will be stirring thy people up to request it and to plead and to do as we said this morning, to ask and to seek and to knock and do all three continually. Come and answer prayer. Be with those who know the pain of bereavement in their heart and mind today. And we would think of the Hammond and Arrell family connections. We would think of Tommy Little's family as well. Uh, we think of others too that have been through this valley in recent months and even years, and the pain has not departed, the wounds have not healed, and the loneliness has not been altered. Lord, we pray that thou will come near and that thy word will be the very medicine they require in the middle of life's misery. Come and answer prayer. Stand by as we pray. Breathe with thy spirit upon the word tonight, and may we know the power of thy presence in a real way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three phrases in the Old Testament. And really, at first look, they're quite similar one to the other, and yet they present different aspects. What a true believer's experience with God actually is, or at least what a true believer's experience with God should be. One phrase is walking before God. Now, Abraham in Genesis 17 and verse 1 knew all about that because that's what he was commanded to do. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me. Then the house of Eli, that departed, of course, from the straight and narrow in the most massive way, that house of Eli, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 13, they were required to walk before me forever. Solomon, when he was replacing his father on the throne of Israel, his father had given him an injunction, good advice. In 1 Kings 2 and verse 3 and 4, and in the middle of that advice was that the Lord may continue his word, which he spake concerning me, saying, if thy children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee a man on the throne of Israel. And so the emphasis here in these illustrations that we have brought together, the emphasis is to walk before the Lord. What is that? That's to order your and my daily life in the conscious awareness that I am always under the searchlight, always under the scrutiny of the eye of Almighty God, that Almighty God of heaven and earth. He sees me and I'm walking before Him. The second phrase that again describes Christian conduct, and that is similar 
to the first, as the third will be also, is walking after God. And I find that in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 4, ye shall walk after the Lord your God, and fear Him, and keep His commandments, and obey His voice, and ye shall serve Him, and cleave unto Him. And so the major thoughts that are led at my door here, the requirement that is upon me, is simply this, I need to submit my will to the rule that God lays down. I need to have my steps walking firmly on the path that God is laying out. I need to search out all of those providential dealings of His with me, sometimes when things are hard and painful and a road is rough and rugged, still believe no matter what the Lord is doing, He is always doing the best and the most blessed things that can be done. And in the future, I'll understand that to be the case. Maybe not immediately, but in the future I will walking before God, walking after God, and the third similar phrase, walking with God. And we go right back to the book of Genesis, chapter 5, verse 22, and we come across a man there, and here is his testimony, God writing up his life, simply says, Enoch walked with God. And that's a tremendous concept, to actually walk with God. Now, to walk before Him might contain an element of fear and an element of dread and an element of, well, I'm pretty uncomfortable at this, even terror sometimes, because I am thinking, well, here I am walking before God. All of my sin is seen by Him, and how outrageous is that sin? To walk before Him does introduce, therefore, an element of fear. To walk after Him Well, to walk after Him might mean that I'm playing catch-up all the time, that I'm lagging behind. You might at the start of the year decide, right, what I'm going to do every single day, I'm going to follow, for example, Robert Murray McShane's daily Bible readings, four chapters a day, and that'll get you through the whole Bible, and you'll have it read in one year. And then you find maybe after day six, I've missed my readings for today. Didn't read the four chapters, only got two read. And then you're playing catch-up in the days that come to get back on track. And so it is, if I'm walking after God, I can very easily lag behind. The old nature, it'll drag me down. It'll tell me, you don't need to do this right now. You can catch up later. And I'll find I have that real effort to put in to be walking after God. Enoch walked with God. An old Baptist pastor from Manchester, Alexander McLaren, said, to walk with him implies a constant quiet sense of his divine presence, which forbids that I should ever be lonely, which guides and defends, which floods my soul and fills my life. And reading that, you'd be saying, well, that's pretty idyllic. That's what I would love. You know, that's a wonderful situation to be walking with God and enjoying all of the things that he's talking about. And that's only part of his quote. There are many other things that he mentions are the benefits of walking with God. Now, this life of close communion should not appear to be remote because it's a very distinct possibility for each one of us 
And more than that, we should be seeking for it, striving for it, searching for it. And so to help you and guide you and encourage you and instruct you to walk with God in the fullest, deepest sense of the terms, we are looking tonight, and we'll probably come back again to it, we're looking at Amos 3 in the verse 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And let me rephrase that slightly. Since the word together literally means as a unit, then can two walk as a unit? Can two walk in harmony? Can two walk in refreshing unity? Except they be agreed. Can two walk together? Except they be agreed. And that's a question that we should ponder, and we're going to delve into it tonight. The accept of regularity. What is needed between us and God? The kind of communion that we can and should enjoy. But here's a question. The prophet Amos poses it. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Well, in agreement about what? Well, the first thing, our walk must be from the same point. If we are to walk with Christ, our walk must be from the same point. That's a pretty natural thing. If you're going out, say, meeting with a friend, and you're telling them, well, let's go for the coffee, but before we have the coffee, or just after we have the coffee, we're going to go a walk. Well, you're going to have to tell them the meeting place. Here's where we'll meet, certain time, certain day, and that'll all be arranged, and then the walk can take place. There has to be a starting point. Where is the starting point for me? A vile sinner of earth who wants to walk with the virtuous Savior of heaven. Where can I meet with him? on a road of agreement and harmony and communion and walk in the pathway of divine grace, where is the meeting place? Well, there's only one spot, and that is very obvious. It's Calvary. We meet with the Lord Jesus Christ at that very point where in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 85 and verse 10, we have mercy and truth are met together. We have righteousness and peace. They at that spot, they have kissed each other. So there's an embrace of these opposite things. Mercy and truth. Righteousness that demands judgment to fall upon things that are wrong, and then peace. They meet together in harmony, in unity. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And the only place where these things are agreed is at Calvary because of what the Savior did. Many times in our gospel meetings, we sing the hymn of William Newell, Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Where? At Calvary. There can be no meeting with Christ and the corrupt sinner, with the Savior and the person that is steeped in their iniquity, 
with the Prince of Peace on the one hand, and me who am the producer of perverseness. There can be no meeting at all unless that meeting takes place on the grounds of mercy and grace, in righteousness and truth, under the all-revealing, all-cleansing canopy of the precious blood of Christ. Without Calvary, there is no such meeting possible. Now, three features of Calvary are suggested to our minds here by an interesting word in our text, the word agreed. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And the meaning, the three meanings of the word agreed are going to be the basis of our study here tonight. One meaning of the word agreed is to fix by appointment. So, what's that meaning? You and your friend, stated time, particular place. It has the force of an appointment, for that's what it is. And the meeting we're talking about, a sinner and a savior, is one that is fixed upon by appointment. So that's the first thing tonight, the place of appointment. We are in our theology. Calvinistic. I believe Calvinism is just being biblical. And therefore, we're persuaded from what the Bible teaches that Calvary was the place appointed by God from all eternity for man's redemption. And so we believe that before the clock of time began to tick and this world ever had a beginning, before the world would have been fashioned, put in place, all the planets began to spin in their orbits. Seeing man would fall into filthiness, God again knowing man's helplessness and hopelessness that he never, when he would fall into sin, would get himself out of that sin again, could never be his own savior. God was determined back in eternity past that I will separate and save a vast number of men and women from the calamity, from the catastrophe, from the condemnation that will follow on them as a result of their sin. And so he resolved away by like then, that he would present his well-beloved son as a substitute, a sinless, spotless substitute to die upon a cross for those sinful people. And away back then, he appointed the place. It'll be Calvary. He decided upon a time, and that time, well, we're told in Galatians 4, the verse 4 and 5, when the fullness of the time was come. In other words, you're waiting for a big event. You know what's going to happen at 7 o'clock. You maybe spend the whole day, and you're getting ready for that, and all the preparation is going in, and you're getting dressed up to go out, and then the time comes. Well, that's how it was with the coming of the Son of God. God the Father knew the time. We didn't. But when the fullness of the time was come, the hour struck. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, that's at Bethlehem, to mirroring, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And then again, when the hour has come, 
Some years later, our Savior suffers. He agonizes. He pours out His body and soul. He died. And as those seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and years and decades and centuries, when they tick by in the clock of God, there's a soul saved over here. There's a soul saved over there. There's a soul saved somewhere else. Because each of those souls have the blood of Christ That work that he accomplished on Calvary, they have that blood of Christ applied to them there, there, and there. Yet another soul has all those priceless benefits of the cross granted to him, and he's over here by faith. Each one is brought to Calvary. Through repentance over their sin, they're brought to that cross. By grace, those who are numbered among the chosen of God, chosen in Christ, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world, they have their eyes opened, they have their minds illuminated, they understand what they didn't understand up until that point, they have their hearts changed, and their feet are placed. Where? onto this pathway where they are walking together in agreement with God. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And so they're walking in fellowship with Him. And by the power of God, they're released from the bondage of the devil, brought under the tender, thrilling control of Jesus Christ. Too, he says, my yoke is easy. A reference to two oxen brought together, connected, and pulling the ply across the field. My yoke, the yoke joining them is easy. We are joined to Christ similarly, and we find that His burden is light. You see, what happens in time? Well, the hymn writer got it right when he said, Thus the eternal counsel ran. It's not just a snap decision on God's part. It's the eternal counsel that runs. Almighty grace, arrest that man. What a privilege. If you and I should be counted among that glorious number of those who by grace are chosen of God to walk with Jesus Christ, elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. And you know what? This work of the Holy Spirit in reaching out to souls, arresting them, calling them to saving faith and real repentance towards Christ, it's going to happen and happen and continue to happen until every last member of the body of Christ for whom he shed his blood has been redeemed. Nobody will be left out. No one will be left behind. Lord, count me among that number. When those saints go marching in, that should be our prayer. The place of appointment. But then there's a second shade of meaning on this term agreed in Amos 3 and 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And we've got a very scholarly preacher here, G. Campbell Morgan. And he said, this word agreed is used to indicate a summons in a legal sense to a fixed tribunal. In other words, you're being called to court here. 
And there's that shade of meaning in this term, agreed. The thought is that of a judge who meets at an appointed place, a person summoned to appear before him. Now again, this all happens because of the cross. Calvary. Calvary is the largest influence for any sinner who appears in God's courtroom. The key thing is, has Jesus shed his blood and died for me? Because if he has, he has taken the full penalty that my sin-breaking God's law demanded. He has paid the full price on my behalf, and therefore in the court. Do you know what's going to happen? I'll be pronounced not guilty. Because Christ has taken my guilt upon himself. And he's died for me. And I will hear the verdict. Go free. You're justified. Every claim that the law ever had on you or shall have on you has been answered, satisfied to the full. Now you're completely, finally, eternally released. How does that happen? Skymel was the leader of a Caucasian people, that they long had fought back against the Russian advance in lands between the Black and Caspian Seas. But among smiles, people, bribery arose, and corruption, they were increasing, and so he decided he would pass a very severe law. The law would come into place on a certain date, and after that time, anybody convicted of bribery, would be brought to a whipping post, and they'd receive 100 lashes on their bare back. The first offender, Skymel's own mother. What would he do? Would he spare her? She's my mother. Well, you've made the law. The law severe, or would the 100 lashes be inflicted on his mother? Now, love was saying, release her. Justice was saying, no, punish her. And the people who were living under this new law, they were appealing for a final decision to be arrived at. They waited to see what he would do. Then came the sentence, take her to the whipping post. Skymel attended in person. And after five strokes had broken his mother's back. He said, stop, release her. And he took off his uniform, took off his shirt, and he said, I will take the rest. And as his mother looked on, 95 strokes fell on his bare back. Justice was satisfied. The law was seen to be done and upheld, and love bore the brunt of the penalty. Justice and love met in the same place, at the same whipping post. Now, the love of God is like that, but it goes further and deeper than that. And when we look to Calvary's cross, we see the sinner come, and that sinner, his head and his heart and his hands, his mind, his conscience, every single one of his faculties, they have all been 
deadened by the amount of sin that they have committed, and they are dripping with his iniquity, and that's you and that's me. Here is one. The Bible describes us as dead in spiritually dead. Not physically, but spiritually in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, the verse 1 to 3. We are further described in the same, same passage as we have lived and walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. In other words, what the devil is saying, dictating, advising, counseling, holding out as attractive, we're thinking, oh, we need that. That's the way we want to go. And so we immerse ourselves in more sin. And Paul says here in Ephesians 2, we do it in the lusts of the flesh. We fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're not living for God. We're not loving God. We're doing what the lust of our flesh demands. And we are by nature the children of wrath. So things are very poor for us. But here we are. We're summoned to appear before the bar of God into the courtroom of God. What chance do we have? Looking at us, you'd say, rule it out. He, she's going down. That's it. But the Son of God arises, descends to earth, endures untold shame, took the vile sin of us vulgar sinners, endures the agony of the cross. He expires on that cross, having lived a righteous life, and now died a substitutionary death. And not only that, he has paid the full penalty as he stood in our place, occupied our room, was at the whipping post because of our transgressions, took our place took our helm, silenced all the claims of a broken law, silenced every claim of offended justice, silenced every cry of truth that we should be condemned because he was condemned for us. And he has satisfied the Father because look at the smile on God the Father's face. Mercy and peace at Calvary can now kiss each other as justice and truth do as well. The result is you and I, the sinner, when we trust in Christ, can go free. Why? Because that redemption was purchased on Calvary. We are justified as we call upon His name from every sin. We can appreciate the words of the poet, God could not pass the sinner by. Justice demanded that he should die. But in the cross of Christ we see how God can save yet righteous be. The judgment fell on Jesus' head, and by his death, sin's debt was paid. Stern justice can demand no more, and mercy can dispense her store. That's something to be glad about. Something to rejoice about. William Lyford was a Puritan preacher. And a few days before he died... He was asked by his friends to, well, tell me, what is your hope for eternity? Why do you believe, in other words, you're going to get to heaven? And he said, I will let you know how it is with me and on what ground I stand. Here is the great punishment of sin on the one hand, and here am I, a poor sinful creature, on the other. But this is my comfort 
the covenant of grace established upon so many sure promises has satisfied all. The act of oblivion past in heaven is, I will forgive their iniquities and their sins will I remember no more. Then he says, this is my blessed privilege within the covenant. I know my interest in Christ. Therefore, my sins being laid on him shall never be charged on me. Calvary is the place of annulment. What our debt of sin is blotted out, obliterated with the blood of our beloved. It's a place of appointment. It's a place of annulment. And finally, the cross is the place of affinity. This term agreed, we said there were three layers of meaning with it. And the word agreed also means to be true. We said it means to fix upon by appointment. It means to appear by a legal summons into that courtroom. But it also means to be true, and within it lies the idea of that mutual surrender of life to life and love to love that should be there. That's the building block of a marriage relationship. Now this again, this definition brings us right to the cross. Because it's there that guilty sinners are brought to a wonderful, staggering, most intimate union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's there that we are united to Him. It's there that we enter into His person and work, and draw out the fullest of benefits. According to those that have worked their way through the New Testament, and they've got into statistics and numbers and figures and all of that, and they like then to feed stuff into a concordance on a computer and so on, the expressions in Christ, in the Lord, in Him, in whom, they occur 164 times in the letters that Paul wrote alone. One of the most famous you'll recognize in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Christ spoke on that subject of our union with him through the new birth, and he spoke about it in John 14 and verse 20. At that day ye shall know that I am in the Father, and ye in me, and I in you. John 17, that prayer of his for his people, verse 20 and 21, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as thy Father art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, what our Lord is teaching there in John 14 and John 17 is that every single believer, through the energy of a simple childlike faith, by virtue of God's grace, does really enter into union, into the closest of close relationships with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a privileged position. What does this union give? It gives strong protection. Just like Noah and his family were so secure in the ark, 
So we are secure in Christ. Just like the Old Testament picture where in Palestine they had six cities of refuge dotted around the nation. And if you accidentally killed someone, and if you got before they got you, they're avengers of their blood, that is, family members, friends, whatever, before they got hold of you, killed you for killing their friend, if you got to one of the six cities of refuge dotted around the nation of Israel, got in through the gate, you could say, you can't touch me because I am protected in here. And if you get to Christ, And the Bible tells us, flee for refuge to Jesus Christ. And if you can fly into His welcoming arms, you are safe for time and for eternity as well. So there's strong protection in this union. There is splendid personalness about it because we have the picture in the Bible of the husband and the wife relationship. And under God, the closest, most intimate, most affectionate of all human bonds. And we have it in the Bible described in Ephesians 5, 22 to 26, in 1 Corinthians 6 and the verse 17. I think of the old Scottish preacher. I think I referred to him last Lord's Day evening here. Samuel Rutherford preached at Anworth, lowlands of Scotland, in the covenanting times, just down the road. We have the place where the two Margarets were drowned at two stakes in the Solway Firth for their faith in Jesus Christ, that they would not renounce despite all the threats of persecution against them. But up the road, therefore, Samuel Rutherford, based on his life, his ministry, his preaching, his letters, we have a lady, and she writes a poem about Rutherford's ministry. And one of the verses is, Oh, I am my beloved's. I belong to Christ. And my beloved's mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no safer stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I am my beloved's. My beloved's mine. What a union he's talking about there. Strong protection, splendid personalness. And there is also some sublime permanence about this. If I come to Christ, if I'm walking with Him, if I'm in agreement with Him, if we are starting from the same point, if we are walking through in life's journey together, do you know something? Nothing can separate Him from me. Nothing can separate me from Him. That's the ultimate. In Romans 8, the verse 38 and 39, For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a permanent, everlasting Union, what joy to be a partaker of this. Henry Scoggle worked up in Aberdeen. King's College there was a preacher, taught theology. He wrote a book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And he lamented that back in his day, and he would lament even more today, that very few people around him even knew what it was to be united to Christ. Scoigel said, true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature. 
The very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the apostles' phrase, it is Christ being formed within us. And we have sung a chorus some Sunday mornings in recent weeks, which is to be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like Him. I'll never be perfect as He is, but I can see improvement, and I can know development, and I can feel closer. Can to walk together, except they be agreed. They must, on the walk to heaven with Christ, begin at the same point, the ground of appointment, the ground of annulment, the ground of affinity. And if we don't, we miss heaven miserably and end up in hell irretrievably. To Calvary, you and I need to go. To the cross, that's the starting point. The geographical heart of London is Charing Cross. Way back in the day, every distance was measured from it. The spot, they referred to it merely as the cross. A lost child was noticed by a London policeman one day, and the child wasn't able to provide its address to that policeman. Couldn't tell where it lived. But finally, and it's got repeated questions coming in from the policeman, in answer to those questions, and the middle of its own sobs and cries, the little guy said, if you'll take me to the cross, I think I can find my way from there. Charing Cross. And as a sinner, that's the place we need to get to. If you can take me to the cross, the starting point, the meeting place for all who will walk with God. Have you been? Have you been to the cross? You need to get there. I must needs go home. By the way of the cross, there's no other way but this. I will never get sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. And so I'm appealing, come, come today to the cross for Jesus' glory, for your soul's salvation.